podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to The Paddock and the Pavilion with Stephen Wallace. In each show, Stephen will interview someone connected to the world of horse racing or cricket. Hello everyone. There is no live guest today, but for our 100th episode, I have put together two compilation episodes, one for cricket and one for horse racing. I hope you enjoy the mix of them both. It was fun to make, but much harder work than I thought. Our first cricket guest in August 2020 was Roland Butcher, who in 1981 became the first black player to play test cricket for England when he played against the mighty West Indians in Barbados. Here's a clip from when Roland first joined me on the paddock and the pavilion in episode two. As you hear, I hadn't spoken to Roland for a few years. Yes, Stephen, it's a great pleasure to be with you. And yes, 2004, many years ago. Yeah. How, how are you anyway? Absolutely fantastic. Obviously in Barbados now for the last 16 years, um, weather is great. Um, but like everyone else, the last three or four months have been quite tough for everybody with this COVID-19. But apart from that, fine. In that opening cricket episode, Roland also recalled his exciting one-day international debut the previous August against Australia at Edgbaston. It was a very high-scoring game. Excellent. Yeah, England pitch. got three. England got three hundred and twenty. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, boycott Gooch. Uh, I think Bilathi got a half century. Got a half century. As I said, we got over three hundred. Um, Australia replied. Um, got very close. I think Kim Hughes. I think Kim Hughes got a hundred or so against a good Australian attack of Lily Thompson, Pascoe, and other players like um, Greg Chappell, you know, Rhea Bright, etc., etc. So it was a good good side. And the important thing was, you know, we came up as winners on a, on a very entertaining day. So really, for me, it was it was really delight. I, I enjoyed that day, even to this day, when I think about it, because everything just went right on that day. It was a lovely day, um, big crowd, good pitch, um, played with some fantastic players. And of course, we won. And you scored 52 in 38 balls, which in those days was uh, was going some. Yes, in those days. I mean, I, I found out afterwards that it was actually, um, it became the fastest 50 in international cricket in, in ODI. So, you know, that was, that was nice to certainly have that in your first game. Roland has since joined me on the podcast to provide regular insightful England Test Series updates. The next one is planned shortly after the fifth test at Hobart. One of our early cricket guests was Warwickshire opening bowler Ollie Hannon Dolby, who in episode 18, A Bear Going Places, corrected yours truly on his 11th century historical knowledge. Well, I'm going to take you back now to your looking up your first second team game, whether you probably were at the academy then in yeah. July, July 2006. Yeah. And you played at the playing fields at Stamford Bridge. Now, the name uh, sort of rang a bell with me. Obviously, it's not the football ground, Stamford Bridge, but this is the battleground where Saxon King Harold lost to the Vikings or was defeated to the Vikings in 1066. But, uh, no, um, he, won. he won. Harold Godwinson beat Harold. Oh, Harold won. Yes, sorry. my I've, I've not read my notes very carefully here. So, yeah, this was, this was when Harold won. Yes, yeah. And then he walked down all the way down to Hastings and then lost in his next match. Yeah. 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 I, I, remember, I remember doing it at A-level and it was very fortuitous from what I remember, the fact that he had to unfortunately go up to beat Harold Hardrada at Stamford Bridge. 
And then just as he beat him, the wind changed, and um, William the I won't call what he, I won't say what he was called at the time. William the beep, um, the wind changed. He was able to get over the coast, wasn't he? So the minute he finished at Stamford Bridge, he had to trek all the way down to Hastings and then yeah. take William. Yeah, it's a long walk, a long uh, it's a long uh, trek <laughs> down there. But perhaps the guest I found most entertaining to talk to was former England paceman Devon Malcolm, famous for his nine for fifty seven against South Africa in 1994, not forgetting he's over 1,000 first-class wickets. Devon recalled his debut for Derbyshire in 1984 when a fellow player and former England Test player and national selector Jeff Miller helped him out with his match kit. Jeff did have a sports shop at the time. And, you know, I also remember turning up for my first game because, you know, as a club cricketer at college, Turned up at Derby after I had my my um, I had to drop this actually had my um, my my uh, uh, trials and given a contract and for my first game Jeff Miller I remember actually he had a sports shop Muscle Miller Sport and he turned up with a cricket bag because I had nothing you understand and there was a helmet in there um, uh, it was a bat it could have been I don't know if he gave me a bat that would be pointless anyway but yeah there's a bat there's bat in there. There were pads, the whole work. And all of a sudden, I felt like a, a, a professional cricket. And I said, what a lovely man. Thank you very much, sir. I said to Jeff and all that business. And you know, I said, no problem. I'll be taking 50 quid a month. 50 quid a month. <laughs> yes, the most expensive helmet I've ever bought in my life. <laughs> Way back then. But it was good. But all of a sudden, I had my kit bag. He said, no, no, you're a professional now. You can't go borrowing stuff. you got to have your own bag. So, you know, um, he got me my first bag of kits, um, of cricket stuff. Not for free, but it was fantastic. I felt like a pro. I have all my stuff, all my boots. And, and he made sure he kitted me out with the real proper stuff. You know, all my arm guards, it all worked. I'm meeting guys like Bob Taylor. Oh, my gosh. Unbelievable, you know. These are guys you see on TV. And as I said earlier on as well, I, was, I could walk quickly, but I was wild. But I've never, ever seen a guy, Bob Taylor, you know, ball on the left side, and most of the wicket keeper wouldn't even get close to it, and Bob Taylor was there, just catching the ball. He rarely dived. Occasionally, you have to dive when one went a bit further, but I don't believe Bob let a buy off me, you know. He went a hell of a long game, but even practice game. Unbelievable, I keep saying, wow, you saw him on TV, but just to have Bob keep to you in the main... Man, it was just unbelievable. Next, you realize, ah, that's what first-class cricket is about. And if you want to play international cricket, it's a massive different step. So it was great to meet guys like that. After hearing about Jeff, let's hear from him. Jeff joined me for a double dose in episodes 76 and 77. A well-known raconteur, Jeff enjoyed a bit of banter with me about his test debut during the hot summer of 1976 against the West Indies. I turned up, you know, the day before, as you did. I had a bit of a net. Had the, the evening get-together, evening meal, as they had then. And and I wasn't part of the discussion at all. Obviously, we'd, uh, West Indies had given us a tough time. And this was going to be a hard one as well at the Oval. And I wasn't part of the discussion. And then in the morning of the game, Tony Gregg, God bless him, no longer with us. Tony Gregg came to me with a... Short sleeve sweater, a long sleeve sweater, and a cap. Said, "Congratulations, you're selected. You're playing," because John Snow had got an injury. So I, 
as a non-spinning off spinner took the place of John Snow. <laughs> well, it was a good it was a good game to to get an injury because on the first day the West Indies were three hundred and seventy three for three on the first yeah. day. And yeah. do you know that the only England bowler, oh sorry, the only England player who didn't bowl, England had nine bowlers in that uh, first inning. We had six spinners. And Dennis Amos was the only person who didn't bowl for England, apart from Alan Knott, as the West Indies racked up 687 for yeah. eight. Yeah. I know. I know that very well, Stephen. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Now they, um, uh, as I say, we, we've got, when you say all these bowlers, you know, there was Bob, Bob Willis and Mike Selvey, but you know, there's myself, Derek Underwood, um, Derek Underwood, Peter bowled 60 bowled. overs. Derek bowled 60 overs in that game, in the first inning. Yeah, yeah. But there, there was uh, Chris Balderston, he he left-arm spinner. David Steele, left-arm spinner. Pete Willey. And, and Greggy bowled his off-spinners as well. So there were six spinners. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, I, I, we don't need to go into too much detail on that, unless you want to. You know, my first week no, was yeah. a, a long hop to Roy Fredericks, who smashed it to cover and Chris Balderston took off and caught it. Well, five, five of their six batsmen, opening six batsmen, got a half century with Viv getting 290. And yeah. Michael Holding got 14 wickets, your friend Michael. But you weren't dismissed by Michael in either innings, even though you got I 14 wasn't. of the 20 wickets. I wasn't, no. First innings, I was. Um, I tried to hook... Um, uh, now that right, isn't it? It wasn't worth it. was... Uh, Van Ben Holder was your... Vanny, uh, yes, it was yeah. Vanny. Van Ben Holder, yeah, yeah. And, and I got caught by substitute um, at mid-on. Does it say sub? Have you got it there? Sub, caught, no, I haven't sub. got it. No, not in front oh, of me, no. Right. Uh, and then um, you got... Uh, a, a fast bowler got you out in the second innings, didn't he? No. No, this is a joke, really. The, the fast bowler oh, got you out in the second innings, yeah. With Viv Richards. Viv yeah, Richards, yeah. Yeah, thank you, yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, that's your kind of humour, is it, Stephen? <laughs> Probably the most famous cricketer to join me on the paddock and the pavilion was another man of high speed, Michael Holding. Mikey, in a two-part show, talked about his excellent new book, Why We Kneel, How We Rise, and his West Indian touring days in England. Here's a short extract from episode 75. <laughs> what effect did those victories have on... I see you smiling there. What effect did those victories have on West Indians living in the UK and sons and daughters of uh, the Windrush generation? Well, the three tours that, we, that I came on, every time the West Indies won, you could see the faces of the Caribbean people living in England. It lit up, it lit up their faces. And they walked a lot straighter, shoulders up, you know, chest out, because they were being treated as second-class citizens in England. And they wanted to show everyone that they came from the same place that these cricketers came from. And these cricketers are doing so well, are beating the England team. They are getting respect on the cricket field, and they wanted respect off the cricket field for, for themselves. So whenever we did well, they felt, they felt very good. It, it boosted their morale. It boosted everything about their life. So all three tours, whenever we won, it, it had an impact. The 1984 tour, of course, because we won every game, was a greater impact. And by then, I got to recognize myself how important it was for the West Indies team to win whenever we came to England. Because if my first tour, 
I heard about it and I had a little inkling about it, but I wasn't mixing with the society in general. I came on my first tour, I was 22 years old. I did, never had never played county cricket. I had never been to England before. Didn't know anybody in England. So it was a matter of just sticking with the team, going to the various matches and going back to the hotel and occasionally meeting some West Indians up here because some of the guys played county cricket and knew people up here. But when I came back 80 and 84 and I started to then know a lot more about the country and know more West Indians up here and actually getting in, into the society and moving around and traveling around, going on the streets with friends, that's when I got to understand really how much it meant to them. Simon Bailey, the national chaplain to horse racing, joined me in episode 10, A Man of Hope, to discuss the effect of mental health in sport during the pandemic. A keen cricketer, Simon went on to talk about the first test match he saw live, a match that featured future podcast guest and Ashes winner, I wanted to get that in, Philip De Freitas. Do you remember the, the first test match you went to? I do remember the first test match I went to. Um, it, it was England versus the West Indies at the Oval. That would have been 1988, I think, 1988. That, would that have been the, it was the last test. And it was that test series that England played everybody that, 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 that was eligible to play for England. They, they couldn't find a good side. I think they were two or three nil down in the test series. And I think Graham Gooch, I think it was his first test as a cap, cap, captain. My brother played, Rob Rob played. Um, oh, so the first test match you went to was to yeah, watch your brother, yeah? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You must have had good seats anyway. So We did have good seats. And it was a good first day, first day and a half. I think we bowled. I think we bowled the West Indies out for something like 180 odd, and Neil Foster got five or six for not a lot, six for 40 something, I think. But unfortunately, it all, you know, as it does with England's Test side over those years, it all kind of fell fell apart quite quite quickly. So that was the first live Test match I saw. A case of brotherly love there for Simon. England lost the Test by eight wickets. And brother Rob scored 43 and 3 on his test debut. In episode 66, I spoke to Catherine Leng, an England test match centurion of 1996. Catherine recalled her pre match meal, not something that will be on today's test match eve menus. And the following summer against New Zealand at Scarborough, you scored 144, batting at number seven. <laughs> that must have been a special day to score a test century. Yeah, I'd just been at Yorkshire, I think. Doing it on Yorkshire turf was fantastic. It, I just, um, memories of being really pleased we were batting first because um, I forgot, I, the night before I had a fish and chip dinner um, as match preparation and then the day of the match we won the toss it was like great we're batting I can have a bit of a a bit of a sit down watch some cricket at the lovely pavilion that is Scarborough and you know all these girls kept coming past <laughs> from the pitch and I was like hang on a minute it's before lunch I think I might need to put my pads on and at the time I went in, one of the girls, Barbara Daniels, was batting absolutely beautifully. And just my um, 
it was a bit of a Jeff boycott innings, really, because my job was just to keep her. He didn't keep people on strike. He took the strike. But it was to just value my wicket, really. So it was just to support her. I didn't have to worry about getting runs because she was getting them. So I, I could I just really bedded myself in and uh, watched her back from the other end really but it's very slow very very slow innings for me and I think I maybe ended up with about 80 not out at the yeah end I was going to say you were you were actually you were 90 not out overnight so mm. must have been nervous going into the next morning <sighs> yeah I did I remember not sleeping very much we got a this is how long ago it was a CD. I got a new CD. I got um, Ocean Colour Scene, Mosley Shoals, and I played that all night, or what seemed like it. But, yeah, the the Kiwis didn't give that 10 runs to me very easily. They said it was their job that morning to keep me from getting 100. And to score it in Yorkshire must have been probably one of the highlights of your career. Yeah, de- definitely, without... A doubt, really. Yeah, it's very, very special to me. Catherine went on to score 144, batting at number seven, of 229 balls in 285 minutes. Keeping on the test match front, former Kiwi captain Ken Rutherford, who is now the CEO at Hawkesbury Racecourse near Sydney, reflected in episode 58 on his test debut against the fearsome West Indies pace attack in 1985. Ken made a pair in that first game at Trinidad. Um, yeah, it was pretty tough. It was pretty tough. Uh, the second innings, though, was interesting of that test match to complete the pair, and then I got run out without facing a ball. So, um, yeah, what happened know, I there? feel a bit aggrieved by that, quite frankly. What happened with the run out without facing? It's the worst way to get out for anyone. Well, I think Roddy was Roddy being the kind-hearted soul that he is. Um, he, he thought on the sixth ball of the first over of the second innings from, from Marshall, I'd better try and protect young Rudds at the other end and uh, hit it straight to Roger Harper, who was on as a substitute fieldsman and, and called yes. And, uh, and then followed with uh, yes, no, wait, but I was already halfway down, but I was out by a yard, of course. But uh, now that was pretty soul-destroying, the fact that I couldn't uh, contribute to my own demise in the second dig, and it was, uh, it was, it was done with, without my facing the ball. Well, Graham Gooch got a pair on his first, in his first test as well. So, But what was it? I'll, I'll tell you something, though. My, my, my first scoring shot in test cricket was in the next test at Guyana. Uh, Joel Garner bowled me this lovely leg cutter and I, and I found the gap between second and third slip uh, at, at very catchable height, about stomach height. You know, I don't know what Viv was doing at second slip or Richie Richardson was doing at third slip. They weren't looking at the ball. So I could have had three in a row quite easily. Well, they were the best side in the world and probably even the best test cricket side of all time. And we've got Viv playing, Desmond Haynes, Gordon Greenwich, Richie Richardson in the batting lineup. And we've mentioned the bowlers, but, and your your highest score in the series was five. Uh, Hell of an effort, that. I mean, I mean, that you, was you the last innings as well. Yeah, you, you couldn't plan that, could you? I mean, five. You know, and uh, <laughs> so yeah, I, I recall the last innings quite quite vividly because it was. I think I walked out there to the bat with about forty five minutes to go to stumps, and uh, Jeremy Carney 
had had just broken his arm, and he had nicked a bit of his forearm. You know, so there was a bit of blood coming out as he was lying prostrate uh, across the, the, the crease line. You know, I remember, I remember with 45 minutes to go walking out and taking guard, and there was a pool of blood where your back goes to take guard. And Desmond Haynes with short legs was saying, oh, young brother, but he says, how does that feel with that blood? You've got to kick that blood away. I mean, that was, that was, <laughs> that was pretty tough. And I remember getting through actually to Stumps being five, not out thinking that's pretty good. It was 5.30 was Stumps time and the, the, the clock on the, on the ground at Sabina Park in Jamaica just turned 5.32. So I was walking off and the umpires said, no, one more over to go. And I got out about the third ball. So that was pretty soul destroying. That was probably the saddest I've ever felt in a career field, to be frank. But uh, let's have another little sip of rewind. Not the finest of debuts for Ken, but he went on to have a successful test career for the Kiwis. One player who was in the wars was Rick McCosker, my guest on episode 40, boy from the bush and a man of faith. Rick, a successful Aussie opener of the 1970s, gave his reflections on the build-up to the historic centenary test against England at the MCG in 1977. It was, it was absolutely amazing. And uh, just the atmosphere built, uh, leading up to the uh, leading up to the match was uh, amazing in itself. Where there were so many uh, dinners and receptions, and so much uh, promotion about the game, a um, lot of hype in radio and TV, and um, and just the the opportunity to see and meet up with so many ex-Test players not only the Australians, but the English players as well, ones that uh, were just names prior to that. And so it was just an amazing atmosphere. Even. Rick will always be remembered for bravely batting in the second innings after breaking his jaw when he was dismissed by Bob Willis in the first innings. I asked Rick about his decision to bat again. And then you famously came back to bat in the uh, second innings, batting at number 10. And it, of course, we're pre-helmet days. Who, right. who, whose decision was it to, to bat again? Was that yours? or It was mine. Um, but I, I asked um, our captain, Greg, Greg Chappell, uh, that uh, told him that I would like to bat if, if that was possible. And he said, well, look, um, you know the risks. It's your decision. Um, and in fact, we, I, I thought it was important for a couple of reasons for me to, to go out because at that point in time, um, our wicketkeeper Rod Marsh was approaching the century. Um, this would have been you know, a fantastic milestone for him to get a century in the centenary test and we're running out of wickets. And uh, we also realised that we needed more runs um, because England had a very good batting side. Uh, the wicket was um, a very good batting wicket by that stage. And the other reason was that um, I'd, I hadn't, apart from the first half hour, 40 minutes, I hadn't taken part in any part at all in this fantastic match. So I wanted to, to be out there, to be part of it, to do something, and to try and do something worthwhile for the team, and just to, to be out there and absorb the, the atmosphere. And uh, there were still 60,000, 70,000 people there in the ground every day. And so that was, uh, and there was no no decision really. I was I was just one of those things. But um, reflecting on that today, there's no way in the world I'd be allowed to go back out today. Um, 
with all the um, protocols, uh, now. all the protocols that take place now. Um, there's no, there's no way it would happen. But um, at the time, I didn't feel in any particular danger, partly because the wicket was so flat and the English bowlers had been in the field for more than a day. Um, they were you know, relatively tired. It had been a hot day. So I, I didn't really feel in, in any particular physical danger and I wanted to get out there and, and contribute uh, to, the, this, to this match. Well, your uh, 25 runs um, and the partnership with Rodney Marsh Despite England's batting in the second innings with Derek Randall's 174, mm. Australia managed to win by 45 runs. So you Correct. did make a difference. <laughs> we did. Yeah, the partnership was 55. I mean, we'll never we'll never know what would have happened had had I not gone out and we didn't have that partnership. We might still have won anyway. Who knows? But um, it was just uh, an amazing. You know, we didn't realise until afterwards in the dressing room reflecting on the result and realising that um, it was the same result as the original Test match 100 years previous. And um, it, um, yeah, it, it was a cause for uh, our joker, Doug Walters, to comment that in 100 years, English cricket has, hasn't learned a thing. <laughs> so um, so there have been no, no change in 100 years of uh, England-Australian cricket. We all thought that was pretty clever at the time. Australia won the 1977 centenary test by 45 runs. The identical result, as Doug Walters had said, of the first test match also at Melbourne. Last summer was a massive one for women's cricket in the UK. The 100, a new tournament in the school holidays, was the perfect showcase for the women's game. In episode 82, young Scottish wicketkeeper batter Sarah Bryce Look back at the competition with Catherine Leng. Sarah was a member of the Oval Invincible side who beat the Southern Brave in the final at Lords. And, and Sarah, how important do you think the 100's been to the women's game? I think it's been huge. I think just the visibility that it's kind of brought to the game has increased so much. And for players to be able to play in front of crowds like that, I mean, I've never experienced anything even remotely like it. It's always just been kind of family and maybe a few extra friends, if you like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we'd only ever played in front of kind of family and friends before. So to be able to play in front of such big crowds of kind of 10,000, 17,000, I think it was in the final, I think it's only going to set players up better kind of for international cricket or going to that, that next level. And just having that experience as well is incredible. And to play in front of that. Um, and I think Heather Knight might have touched on it at some point that, um, it means that those domestic players that get called up to the England side or um, whatever will be more prepared for playing in World Cups um, and the likes of that. So hopefully if Scotland can make it through to the World Cup, having that experience of playing in front at grounds like that, in front of crowds like that, will hopefully be invaluable. And yeah, I think just the visibility of the game. Um, I mean, it was on BBC Sport and BBC News and I don't think that's ever really happened to the same extent anyway. So... Hopefully it's just brought a lot of new fans into the game and then people will discover the other formats as well. And do you think playing in those pressure situations improved you as a player as well? Yeah, definitely. I think it tests you and makes sure that you really know what you're doing because there's no hiding. Um, so, yeah, I think it's definitely... I've definitely learned a huge amount kind of from the 100 and 
it's forced it forces you, I think, to make sure that you really know your game and um, what you need to do in different types of situations. Another winner in 2021 was the Warwickshire opener, Rob Yates, who joined me in episode 88. Warwickshire won both the county championship and the Bob Willis Trophy, while Rob's performances earned him a spot on the England Lions Tour of Australia. Let's move on to 2021. Now you uh, got 907 first-class runs, you scored five centuries, you won two trophies, the county championship and the Bob Willis Trophy. Um, You also got 21 catches. What a fantastic season. Three wickets as well. (laughs) Well, I've got another thing, actually. You also played... um, you also played cricket in October, and not many people do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, yeah, it was a great season. I'd have um, taken that at the start of the uh, start of the year. Um, I didn't know about the, the 20, 20 odd catches. Um, that's quite a nice stat. Uh, yeah, there's, there's plenty that um, I can take positive from the season, and um, I'm quite quite glad there's there's plenty of areas that are. Um, I think I can work on and I know I can work on um, to try and well hopefully make it even better season in years to come With England's current tour down under drawing to a close I thought it was an ideal time to listen to what our resident cricket expert Roland Butcher had to say before the series started Right, well, we can't go without uh, asking the one final question is, um, can you just give us a, a scoreline for the uh, uh, Ashes series? doesn't look good for England, I'm afraid. Um, We've got Ben Stokes now, so, you know, that's going to Well, help. yes, you've got Ben Stokes, but he's, he's a, a rusty Ben Stokes. So he may um, come into his own probably after the third test, and it may be too late. I'm going to go for a 3-0 Australia win on this occasion. Um, I, I just don't feel at this point in time that England will really bother um, the Australian side. The Australian bowling lineup is a very strong one, and in their backyard, they're going to be very, very difficult um, to beat. They've now got some good spin options as well to go with their fast bowlers, and you know their batsmen will always make runs in Australia. So I'm sorry to say, but I think England will lose this one. Some wise words from Roland. And in a few days' time, Heather Knight will lead the England team in their quest to regain the ashes down under. England will also be defending their 50-over World Cup crown in New Zealand in March. In episode 99, Emily Windsor, the player of the match in last season's Rachel Hayhoe Flint Trophy, gave her thoughts on the two campaigns. It's going to be a great series and I also really hope just for English cricket fans it will give us something to cheer about with obviously how the men's ashes has gone at the moment. Um, So yeah, fingers crossed. And then just about a month afterwards, the early part of March, the uh, World Cup England holders playing in New Zealand. uh, You obviously think we're going to do well there as well. Yeah, I think think, again the World Cup is going to be so exciting. The standard of women's cricket across um, more than two countries, if you like. It's usually Australia, England, Australia, England. I think New Zealand on their home soil, they're underdogs because I think they have some fantastic players in their lineup. Hopefully Amelia Kerr will be back. They've obviously got Sophie Devine, Susie Bates. They've got a lot of um, Amy Satterthwaite, Leah Tahu, who they're a strong team as well. You've then got the Indians, 
who have match winners all the way down their batting lineup and, and with the ball too. It's it's going to be a, a fierce World Cup, and I think England are going to have to play or very well to defend their trophy. Um, but I really hope they can do that again. Depth of squad. I'm backing our girls to to have a special few months abroad. Yeah, it should be a tough competition because everyone they're in one group of eight with everybody playing each other, and then the top four going through to the semi-finals. So let me put you on the spot. Who are going to be the four semi-finalists? Uh, Australia, England, New Zealand, and India. Right. Those. Okay. Oh, South Africa, though. Oh, you can't have no. five in the last no. four. Yeah, I know. I'm going to go. No, I'm sticking with my gut. New Zealand are going to be in there. Definitely. Yeah. South Africa are going to just miss out. Well, we've got this on record. I think South Africa are ranked number two in the world in uh, ODIs. So they're now not making the semi finals. So that's uh, an exclusive from uh, Emily Windsor. <laughs> Yeah, you can all uh, tell me that I was completely wrong when all the other teams make it and England, Australia, India and New Zealand are blown away. The very best of luck to the England team. Let's hope they do better than the men. We must end this special 100th episode on some Ashes highs. Two guests who have experienced Ashes wins were Ebony Rainford Brent and Philip De Freitas. Ebony in 2009 and Philip in 1986. 2009 was obviously a very big year for you because you're part of two World Cups winning squads and you also mm. played in the the Ashes, England retaining the Ashes. Presumably that is your favourite year of playing cricket. Yeah, massively. Um, you know, it's it was an incredible, it was incredible because my debut in 2007, we were a team that were rubbish. We weren't very, um, we, we, kept, we pretty much came bottom of that tournament and we... We had talent, but we weren't clicking as a side. And then we spent sort of 18 months up to the next World Cup in 2009, like just getting ourselves organised, what are our roles, what are our responsibilities, what does this mean, how do we train? We just changed so many things and ended up becoming a force really after that for a good time where, like you said, we went on the run of the World Cup, World T20, Ashes. Me personally, I was like a, you know, I was never a you know, Claire Taylor or Charlotte Edwards or Sarah Taylor, who, you know, we had such a good team. So I never got that clear run through the side. So I was in the environment. Sometimes I'd play, sometimes I wouldn't. And so it was kind of a, you know, a, a time where you just knew you, as a squad, we pulled in. If you're playing that day, you had to be on. But if you weren't playing, you still, commu- you know, you, um, you're part of the environment and what it brought and all the energy. So, um, yeah, we, I, you know, can't believe the that period it was almost so surreal of just how we just believed so much in ourselves we knew exactly what we wanted to do it was like every game we went into we had no doubt we were going to win and that was so interesting considering when we started you know it felt like we we're going to lose every game so it was the psychology of that the camaraderie um and the dedication of focus was you know one of the best experiences I've had for like a, a block of sort of 18 months and then the England side, I you know, sort of both of them. You had Lamb, you had Gower. I knew about Mike Gatton because obviously my brothers. Um, so you knew about all these guys. And I never felt that, you know, I never thought about playing with these guys. And then suddenly I'm on tour. I get on tour and, you know, both of them, my hero. Huh. You know, I'm, you know the, first, the first two weeks of the tour, I'm sharing room with my hero. And then, so, and then 
you, you get into the test match in the first test match and I share a I don't know what the partnership was between both of them and myself but I was he got his hundred and the way he smashed it around I was uh, you know uh winning the test match it was just a you know you dream about those things but it came true and so it was a wonderful wonderful time for me well it was a fantastic tour for him because we won the or retained the ashes winning the the test match in melbourne and also did very well in the two one day competitions which you featured in as well yeah it was yeah it, look it was it was people talk about if there's anything you can go back to and you know they'd like to go back and repeat and you know that tour you know i'd love to do it over and over again because it was such a fantastic four months and and i'm sure like the the, the present england side who won the world cup and how their preparations through the years have gone and how they've been uh, and they've got that bonding um it was very much that way you know out there for four months as a family and we played and, you know, we, we, we were just, you know, we, we were also, we were on the dogs when we went out and, you know, there were reports of, you know, we couldn't bat, we couldn't feel, we couldn't bowl. Well, that's and that right. was from yeah. my mate, Scoot yeah. Martin Johnson. And, and we literally turned it around and it was, it was you know, an amazing tour and it, it, it was full of fun. You know, it was full of fun. I think um, Gatton as a, as a leader and his man management, I thought was, was terrific. Uh, Mickey Stewart was a coach. I mean, the, to allow, you know, the big boys, the Bothams, the Gowers, you know, also Gowers, my my county captain. Mm, so, yeah. um, you know, and to allow these guys the freedom, you know, the start of the tour where, you know, it was a bit relaxed, more relaxed. We were preparation before the test matches to allow them that freedom, that freedom uh, was you know, was brilliant. And then when we came to the real thing, you know, it was fantastic. They responded. It was awesome. Absolutely brilliant. That's the 100 Up. I hope you've enjoyed this cricket compilation. I would like to thank all my guests, friends and contacts who have supported me during the year and all you listeners. Do keep listening to The Paddock and the Pavilion in 2022. Thank you for listening to The Paddock and the Pavilion. You can download the show on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at The Pad and Pav. Don't forget, if you like the show, please do leave us a rating and review. Sports Social Podcast Network.